Welcome to Creating New York, the podcast that brings you great things to do in New York City and the great people who create them. I'm your host, Doug Slaywin, and welcome to our third episode. While the creators we're going to hear from today have special events coming up this month, be sure to keep tabs on them all year round. You can find links to their pages, pictures, and more on the Creating New York Facebook page. New York City is one of the greatest music cities in the world. In this episode, we're going to visit with three artists who are creating music and listening experiences born of New York City music traditions. What we're hearing right now is a piece performed by cellist Ashley Bathgate, whose music grows out of the experimental downtown music scene of the 1970s. Later in the show, we'll hear how playing with the Bang on a Can All-Stars helped free Bathgate and her instrument from the traditional roles defined by classical music. But first, music that grows out of a more familiar tradition. If you live in New York City and want to hear great music, sometimes all you have to do is stumble down the street and into the subway. And while some of the sounds you might find there might not be to your taste, each station provides an opportunity to hear a different musical style. And if you're lucky and can slow down long enough to really listen, sometimes you come across artists whose talent just can't be denied. That's how I felt recently when I stumbled across a young singer-songwriter duo called Jesse and Jeremy. Even surrounded by the screeching subway cars and throngs of tourists, their beautiful harmonies and melodic songwriting really stood out. I invited them into the studio to chat and play some tunes and to share how they create new songs that sound like classics. Welcome, Jesse and Jeremy, and why don't we start off with a song? Oh 
to insist this mist will clear doesn't calm a single fear. Are we doomed to be forced to watch a paradise found turn to a paradise lost? A paradise found turn to a paradise lost. What a disaster, wanting it faster when we don't control the speed of it all. Think we're the masters of what's past is faster. Wow, that was great. Uh, how did the two of you start playing songs together? When we first started writing songs, it didn't work at all. I think we were just trying too hard to do it. And then on the 4th of July, we stayed up all night. And we were in Central Park, and it was just a really good atmosphere. And at like 8 in the morning, we wrote our first song. and It was good, yeah. so we decided to keep doing it. <laughs> That's basically it, yeah. So one of my favorite performers in the subway... I think it's at 14th Street. There's this woman, she always sits on a bench, and she always sings like R&B or soul. And one day I was there, and she she wasn't singing. She was in between songs. She was kind of looking at the crowd. And then she put on Whitney Houston, I Will Always Love You. And she gets about, you know, she's like two minutes into the song, and everyone is, they're listening to her, but they're kind of pretending like they're not listening to her. They're like trying to pretend like they're, kind of above it but they're all waiting to see if she's going to be able to make the key change at the end and then she hits that high note and makes the key change and everyone's ah and then they just all turned around gave her a ton of cash got on the train i was i bet she knows when to throw that song on yeah you know um, do you guys have any songs like that or you you're just pretty much going through your set um well yeah we've got this our most recent song i think it's our poppiest song and we always wait until there's the biggest crowd and play that one. It usually works best for getting a response out of the crowd. What song is that? That's fine. That's a temporary name. Or maybe it's it'll stay. But yeah. So do you think that's one of the songs you might do today? Yeah, I think so. Alright, cool. So here's Jesse and Jeremy with That's Fine. Soft and sweet And to think our listen is just a delusion Staring into your blank eyes It's the first time I realize we're ruined Oh, we were 
that man that's fine Looking back at it now Oh, it's hard to see how we ever worked out I can definitely see where that would be a crowd pleaser and like the melody, you know, it really, it really sticks with you. So I noticed on your website that you guys describe yourselves as folk, um, which I know for all musicians, it's hard to find words to fit yourself into a category, but do you guys have a folk underpinning and are there um, groups or records that you've listened to that you feel like are large influences? I think that that's maybe the simplest term to use to describe because um, he's and now I are massive Bob Dylan freaks <laughs> and <laughs> massive. <laughs> um, and we like to use the heritage of, of those musicians, Joni Mitchell and Paul Simon, Simon and Garfunkel. Yeah. List a few other but <laughs> at the same time, we like... Um, I don't know, a more melodic style. I don't know. It's, And we were hoping to do a record with a full band and with electric guitars, maybe. So maybe it would turn out not being so folk when we finally record an EP or something. But Folk, um, Folk's kind of been manipulated into what modern musicians are using the term as, I feel like. Um, and it's more just telling a story in a song, which we want to do. And maybe sonically, it won't be entirely acoustic guitar, but it definitely will always have the storytelling aspect in the songs. Okay, so it seems like you guys kind of see yourselves fitting, you know, loosely as folk. I wondered if you felt like it's a, a New York City, um, kind of a New York City folk tradition of, of sharing your songs in the subway. Definitely a tradition of folk musicians and all musicians in particular just trying to make it any not make it but just have places to play and get paid and that's not entirely happening with music you put out. You can make more money playing the subway than 
than putting an EP online right now. <laughs> yeah, that was one of the things I was interested in is, so, you know, as new artists, there are so many um, outlets that are available to you online with YouTube, SoundCloud, iTunes, Bandcamp, on and on. So I wondered why busking was still kind of an important part of what you're doing and wh- why you choose to do that. I think like the, the beautiful part of music that I love, I think we both love, is connecting with people in person. And there are endless outlets for the music to go to online. And you can develop amazing communities with it. But still, just being able to immediately talk to somebody um, and see their face when they're listening to the music and just make a connection is, is really important. We got to meet you. They're doing it too. So that's what that. Well, you guys are very kind. So um, I want to thank you so much for being here, Jesse and Jeremy. And um, so I think we're going to go out on another song. The song is called Death is a Myth. hearing Jesse and Jeremy today and would like to see them perform live, be sure to check them out on June 11th at the Cafe Vivaldi in what was once the center of the folk universe, Greenwich Village. Also, be sure to like their page on Facebook to find out about other gigs they have around the city and learn about the upcoming release of the EP they talked about that they recorded with a full band which is currently in production. Next, we move from the New York City folk tradition to a legacy you may not even have known started in New York. For many of us, it's hard to imagine the film industry before Hollywood. But from 1895 to 1915, New York City was the capital of American film production. This was in large part due to the city's easy access to acting and writing talent from vaudeville, an abundance of scenery and props, and proximity to investors looking to get involved in what was then an emerging technology. Not only were most American films being made in New York, but the city played host to some of the earliest dedicated film houses in the United States, with over 150 movie houses in Manhattan alone. 
Some of the cinemas during this period were actually gigantic film palaces, where up to 3,000 New Yorkers would pay 10 cents each to catch the latest moving pictures. Of course, the films being shown during this period were silent, and a theater pianist, organist, or in some case even a small orchestra would often play music to accompany the films. While most of the old movie houses are gone, and silent films have long been replaced, there's one New Yorker who keeps the tradition of silent films alive and accompanies them with his own original scores. Here is his story, in his own words, accompanied by some of his own compositions. My name is Steve Sterner. I live in New York, New York. I'm a jack-of-all-trades, master of none, but uh, I'm, a, I'm an entertainer, uh, bottom line. I act, I sing, I play piano, I conduct, I compose, etc., etc., etc. I play most of the silent films. The Film Forum, that's on Houston Street in, in Manhattan. They just finished a flapper series, Flappers and Bad Girls of the 1920s, and I've played over 300 films. I've, I've played uh, about 325 uh, feature-length films and about 40 or 50 shorts. It's been about 35 years now that I've been playing films. The first time silent film came into my life, really, uh, I was a senior in high school. And uh, a group of us uh, went uh, down to the Museum of Modern Art. They said, come on with us, uh, we're going to the Museum of Modern Art, we're going to see The General with Buster Keaton. I had never seen Buster Keaton, I, uh, I had never seen a silent film. Uh, so uh, we went, and the lights dimmed, and the film started, and the pianist started playing. And I felt like I had been transported back into time, into 1925 or 26, by a time machine. And it was magical. And then, of course, discovering Buster Keaton, he totally blew me away. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. I was so taken by the experience that I immediately became a member of the Museum of Modern Art uh, to see the films. And I was living up in the Bronx at the time, and uh, which slept down there three, four times a week uh, to Manhattan to see uh, films, uh, not just silent films, talkies too, uh, and I became a, a fanatic. I got into playing silent films by accident. Uh, I had a friend by the name of Wayne Dagrapont. He was an avid cartoon collector. He also worked at the Thalia Theater up on 95th Street, which was an art house and a revival house for many, many years. And he would have parties and he'd shut the lights and he had a screen and a projector and he would show a half hour of cartoons. And then he'd stop, turn the lights on. We'd all mingle for 20, 30 minutes. And then he'd shut the lights again. We'd see three or four more cartoons and the evening went on that way. Well, at one party, he had a silent Coco the Clown cartoon, and he asked if I could play for it. I said, gee, I don't know. What's it about? What happens in the cartoon? So he explained the plot of the cartoon for me, and I said, well, I'll try. And he showed the cartoon, and he had a piano there, and I played the piano, and everybody loved it. And he thought it was great. And he said, well, we're going to be showing Flesh and the Devil at the Thalia, a full-length film with Greta Garbo. Um, and it's a silent film, and would you play piano for it? And that's how I started playing for silent films. 
I screen the film and I take extensive notes. And once I have my notes, I mark on the top ideas for possible themes. There's usually a love theme. Uh, very often there's a villain in the film. I usually try to give the villain a theme. Once I write the themes, then I practice them. And I get them in my head because I never use music uh, uh, when I play a silent film because I like to watch the film as I play because certain things and moods change in the film and I like to change as the moods change. There are certain parts, points in the film where I know I'm gonna be playing, okay, the lovers are coming in for a big kiss now, let's get the love theme up there strong. And whenever I play that film, that love theme is gonna come in right there when they're gonna kiss. Even when I was a little boy, I liked the era of the 20s and 30s. I always thought, ah, if there's such a thing as reincarnation, I was alive in the 20s and 30s, and probably, I think that the film studio that I relate to the most, that I love the most, uh, is the Warner Brothers studios in the 1930s. 1930s Warner Brothers movies were just fabulous. I love the music, I love the actors, I love the screenplays. James Cagney, my favorite actor, Betty Davis, Humphrey Bogart, and even the, the Glenda Farrell, uh, I, they, it, they blow me away. I love Warner Brothers films, and I think if there's such a thing as reincarnation, I probably worked on the Warner Brothers lot in the 1930s, and I was probably a dog, because dogs like me. So I, I was a dog on the Warner Brothers lot. That's my, my hypothesis. <laughs> When someone new comes who had never seen a silent film and it opens doors for them, I, I think they should be kept alive because they're good enough to be kept alive and because, hey, they gave me pleasure, there are going to be other people who get pleasure out of them. Just try it. Try it, you might like it. But a lot of people, uh, trying it for the first time, it opens up a whole new door for them. And it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a wonderful door uh, if, if you enjoy it. If you're interested in catching one of Steve's performances, be sure to check the website for Film Forum or join their mailing list to find out about screenings of silent film classics. As I mentioned at the top of the show, I was lucky enough to sit down with new music pioneer Ashley Bathgate. While Bathgate is an accomplished player of traditional classical music, she has excelled at what's called contemporary classical, and been described as an eloquent new music interpreter by none other than the New York Times. Bathgate is a member of the award-winning, internationally acclaimed sextet Bang on a Can All-Stars, and has traveled the world playing both concert halls and rock clubs, presenting programming that relies heavily on today's composers. She's worked with an esteemed list of composers and musicians, including John Adams, Martin Bresnik, Don Byron, Jace Clayton, Bryce Dresner of The National, DJ Spooky, Ben Frost, Glenn Kochi of Wilco, Meredith Monk, Richard Ree Perry of The Arcade Fire, Questlove of The Roots, Lee Rinaldo of Sonic Youth, 
and legends like Steve Reich, Terry Riley, and Philip Glass. Did, did, did I leave anyone out? Uh, no. Well, I'm sure there are a lot more, but those those are good ones to have on your list. <laughs> You've done all of this by what age? I just turned 31. Congratulations. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> That's pretty impressive. <laughs> to have gotten to 31, I guess so. Well, to have, to have done this kind of work by, by 31. Yeah, I, I mean, I try to stay as busy as I can. And it's, I guess I've been in the city now for almost eight years. And it's a lot of fun. I mean, I'm doing what I love, and that makes it easy. When you're doing what you love, it's, it's easy to stay with it and make things happen. And so for some of the listeners who aren't as quite as familiar with the idea of contemporary classical music or new music, how would you introduce it to them? I mean, music is music, so this just happens to be music that is written by living composers, and that means a lot of different things. Uh, you know, I, I didn't start out doing a lot of contemporary music or working with living composers in school. I was studying all the dead white guys. And as much as I love those composers, I when I started to work with um, the living ones, I just found myself a lot more excited and kind of really into interpreting other people's music in a fresh way. There's no precedent. There's no sort of rule for how, how it has to sound or what it needs to be. You know, recordings of these pieces don't exist yet. I think there are a lot of different kinds of music, but this, if you want to label it contemporary classical or avant-garde or new music, I, I think I like to characterize it more as experimental because we're just trying new things, kind of figuring out what works and what doesn't, and none of us really know what's going to have a, a lasting impact, and that's part of the fun. And what brought you to um, what brought you to the Bang on the Can All Stars? And if you could describe the instrumentation, sure. Uh, it's a sextet. It's cello, clarinet, piano, percussion, bass, and electric guitar. So how how did I? It's it's a really it's one of my favorite stories. Like I said, I was on this classical track. I thought being a cellist meant playing concertos, sonatas, the box suites. You know, it seemed like there was a, a box that I needed to fit in. Uh, and I had always done a little bit of new music, but not a lot of it. And I, I didn't really realize until later that I was I was quite good at it, maybe for the reason that of sort of coming to something with a fresh approach. Two of my professors, Martin Bresnik and Jack Vees, who kind of approached me right at the end of my time at Yale and said, hey, there's this new music ensemble in the city. They're looking for a cellist. Uh, we really think you would be a great fit. I applied. I got an audition. And about a year later, I had this job, which was very exciting and which really turned everything upside down for me. Um, suddenly this box that I was trying to fit into um, was open. And I was a sponge for it all. I mean, it was, you know, the music of Steve Reich and Philip Glass and, you know, getting to work with some of these indie rockers and really learning that there is no box, there's no right or wrong. It's whatever your, wherever your imagination takes you. And 
there was a freedom to that. And all of a sudden, like, fear kind of went out the window. You know, a lot of times as a classical, quote-unquote, musician, we're taught that we need to be perfect. We need to, we can't miss notes. We've got to always play in tune. Our bow changes have to be perfect. There's no room for mistakes. And we've got to memorize all the, you know, the repertoire. And there's just a lot of pressure that comes from that. And and with working with the All-Stars and, and sort of being on the path that I'm on, I, I let go of all of that stuff. So with all the things you're involved in and so many interesting projects going on, I thought it might be good to focus on your new album, Stories for Ocean Shells, um, that was just released. I understand it's a project with Australian composer Kate Moore, and I wonder if you could tell me about uh, if you could tell me about that collaboration. Sure. So Kate and I met through the All Stars. She wrote us a piece about six years ago called "The Ridgeway," and we sort of hit it off immediately as pals and as musicians. Um, I really identified with her music. Uh, she writes so well for the cello because she actually does play the cello. So began this collaboration. And, you know, of course, she lives in the Netherlands and I live here in New York. Um, so it was this long distance collaboration and friendship. And I commissioned her to write a duo for myself and pianist Lisa Moore. Um, called Velvet, which we premiered and, and played a bunch. And I actually asked Kate if she would consider making that piece into a, into a solo version for me and um, eight ba- uh, backing tracks. Basically, I recorded all eight parts or nine parts of the piece. So, um, yeah, why don't we hear an excerpt from that piece? was the process of making the record? We really influenced each other um, in how it should sound. And then we went into the studio with um, Lawson White, who's amazing. And Lawson was an original member of So Percussion. And we recorded this album of six pieces. Um, and the reason the album is called Stories for Ocean Shells, the title track, is named after so that she went to Thailand and uh, met this little girl who was showing her all of sort of about the culture and you know the traditional weavings and things like this and her name in Thai meant ocean shell yeah so I've spent a little bit of time uh, with the album since it was available I've listened to it a few times and I was wondering about one of the pieces uh, Dolorosa so I felt like um, a couple of the pieces with Lawson were very different than the rest of the record. And, um, and so I wondered in that piece, it sounds like maybe you're singing. Also, it sounds like you're almost using the cello, sort of like an electric guitar. And I was wondering how you achieved those sounds. 
So, actually, I am singing. Uh, so the piece was originally, I think it was premiered or performed with electric guitar, a little bit of distortion, vibes, and voice. Um, so Kate kind of arranged it for me to play cello and sing. And then Lawson had just been given a really beautiful um, lap steel guitar. And Kate, she was like, oh, let's like, let's put distortion on the lap steel and that would be amazing. And so he's playing that and also the, the vibes part. Um, and there's like some vibrato and kind of effects going on there as well. So uh, yeah, let's hear more from the record. This is Della Rosa from Stories for Ocean Shells from Ashley Bathgate and Kate Moore. So let me ask you a little bit about the audience for new music, because um, I wonder where you see the audience. Where is the audience and where do you feel like the audience is growing? I definitely feel that doing the kind of music I do, it attracts a younger crowd. Coming to these shows, I mean, you see now like the New York Phil Biennial. Um, I think the first year that it, it happened, two years ago now, we did the Bang on a Can All-Stars for the first time. I th- we shared a bill with the New York Phil, and this was at Avery Fisher when it was then Avery Fisher. And this was really interesting because I felt like, whoa, yes, like uptown meets downtown, and like this is a really big deal. And some, you know, this organization, which has such a wide reach um, and ability, has has is finally like saying, all right, we want you to hear all different, we want you to hear Julia Wolf, but we also want you to hear Steve, Steve Mackey. We're gonna give you a concert in Avery Fisher, but we're also gonna like have a series at Subculture where you can sip your wine and listen to some, some cool, weird new music. So this is catching on quickly with, with, it's not just smaller groups, it's like big organizations all over the world and across the United States. And I just feel like there's a lot more room and a lot more encouragement of people playing the kind of music, playing new music. 
Um, and that's how we're going to survive. So new music, kind of where it's at. It's happening. It's having a moment. I think that you're, you're right. In, I feel like it's an important time right now, and it's a turning, it's a pivot point. Um, and in the next 10 years, 20 years, um, we're going to see it kind of blow up even more. Well, thank you so much for your time and your expertise and sharing your story with me. Yeah, thanks for having me. Ashley Bathgate and Kate Moore. Their new album is called Stories for Ocean Shells. If you'd like to learn more about Ashley's music, I encourage you to check out her webpage and also her SoundCloud page that is loaded with tracks representing her work with a diverse group of composers. If you'd like to hear Ashley perform live, there are several good opportunities coming up. June 12th, she'll be performing with Yo-Yo Ma and the Chicago Symphony Orchestra in Chicago, Illinois. June 15th through 18th, you can catch her with the Bang on a Can All-Stars at the New Haven Festival of Arts and Ideas. That's just a short train ride away to New Haven, Connecticut. And while you're there, don't miss the pizza. June 26th, she'll be performing at the Cell Theater as part of the Tribeca New Music Festival. And if you've never been to Mass Mocha in North Adams, Massachusetts, a great excuse is to go up July 11th through 31st for the Bang on a Can Summer Festival featuring the Bang on a Can All-Stars in the beautiful Berkshire Mountains. Well, that brings us to the end of this month's episode. If you're looking for more information about any of the creators or events featured, be sure to check out the Creating New York Facebook page. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes or Stitcher to learn about great events coming up each month. And if you'd like to have an event featured, be sure to reach out to us at listings at creatingnewyork.com. Until next time, I'm Doug Slaywin. This is the coast of time To take the coffee shot